Our anchor text for this whole series comes from Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. And I'm going to ask that you stand as we uh, read this and receive God's word together. Here's what the Apostle Paul says. And so, dear brothers and sisters, I plead with you to give your bodies to God because of all he has done for you. Let them be a living and holy sacrifice, the kind he will find acceptable. This is truly the way to worship him. Don't copy the behavior and customs of this world, but let God transform you into a new person by changing the way that you think. Then you will learn to know God's will for you, which is good and pleasing and perfect. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Our kids may be dismissed down the hall, and there's good programming for them waiting. And uh, to the rest of you, uh, we are glad that you are here. And uh, my name is Dusty, but I've also been called Jake from State Farm already today. So if you have insurance needs, I can tackle those after the service, all right? In a uh, survey in the United Kingdom, there were 2,000 families that were uh, queried, and, and they all had kids um, aged 11 to 16. And they asked the children in these families, what do you want to be when you grow up? And at the top of the list was doctor. Okay, that's cool. The second thing on the list, just one percentage point lower, was social media influencer. Third on the list, a couple of points lower than that, was YouTuber. An influencer is somebody who has the power to affect the buying habits or actions of other people with content that they have uh, placed on a social media platform like Instagram or YouTube or Snapchat or something like that. And we started this series and we started talking about this idea of a social media influencer and that, that's actually what kids are aspiring to be. And so um, swipe up is this term that is important and it's, it's important because it's one of the first steps in becoming an influencer on social media. Uh, the swipe up feature is not a feature that just anyone can have. To, to place a swipe up feature on Instagram, you have to have 10,000 followers before you get this ability. And then once you have it, it's a very powerful tool. Swipe up gives the poster uh, the ability to add extra content and to promote products and to create sign-up pages and it boosts traffic, it creates customer loyalty, it's a great tool for business. And it keeps, what it really does is it keeps the relationship going and the longer that you can keep the relationship going with your client, the more opportunity there is to influence them. And so swipe up is about in part this ability to extend a conversation. Now that's all social media, right? And we are a group of Christians and we're here in this room and but guess what? Jesus calls us also to be influencers in the same way. We are to be light in the dark. We are to be a city on a hill. We are to be the salt of the earth. And all of those things that Jesus talks about are about influence. And to be an influence, 
Paul tells us in the text that we just read that there has to be a transformation that takes place in our thinking. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. Not conformed. Conforming is to be assimilated into something. It's to be integrated or absorbed into. It's to comply with other people around us or other ideas Uh, The word conform means to model after. And so uh, I see other people and the way they think, and I just model myself after that. Paul says, no, 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 that's not what we're after. We're not after confirmation. We're after transformation. Transformation is completely different. It's to be changed. It's to be converted. The word is metamorpho, and it means to be remodeled, not to model after somebody or their way of thinking, but to remodel yourself. So it's to take a different course than everybody else is taking. And as Christians, we are to be transformed in our thinking so that we don't just automatically conform to the popular views, but we are transformed and we're able to think about issues differently. And so last week we talked about this idea of holding grace with the people that we rub shoulders with and truth, absolute grace and absolute truth together. They can be held and it's, there's a tension there, but it can be done when, we, when we're transformed and we are able to think differently. Um, we're going to talk about in this series money and uh, that we can manage money with a transformed mind in a way that money becomes a tool Uh, So that we can love people, not just uh, accumulate a pile of wealth, right? We're going to talk about sex and sexuality. Uh, When we transform our thinking, we can live the wisest, best life. We're going to talk about technology and how we can, in a a transformed mind, uh, take this technological gift that we've been given and use it very wisely, and and like Joel said last week, we're not going to tell you which week is which, so you won't skip some, okay? Um, And so today, here's what I want to talk about. A corner of our lives that Paul also says that we have to transform so that we can be an influence for Christ. And then let's talk about an example of that transformation, and then how that transformation can be possible for every one of us in the room. Here's the corner of our lives that we have to transform. On the heels of the verse that we just read in chapter 12, verse 2 of Romans, Paul talks all about relationships. He says, he says I want you to humble yourselves. I, I, I don't want you to think more highly than you ought to of yourself. You all have roles to play in the family of God, and I want you to play them. I want you to love each other as believers. I want you to outdo one another to show honor and to contribute to the needs that people around you have in the fellowship of faith and be hospitable to each other. And so it's all about relationships within the church. But then in verse 14, he kind of gives us this curveball, and he starts to transition from each other inside the walls of the church to outsiders. And Paul writes about those who persecute you and what to do with them, how to live with them. Now, the word persecute means this, to cause to suffer. So anyone who is on the other side of my thoughts or my actions 
or my lifestyle, anyone who is on the other side, regardless of who's right or wrong, we're not talking about that this week. Regardless of who's right or wrong, on the other side of your thoughts and actions and words is a person, and just because they're on the other side of those things, they cause you to suffer just a little bit, right? And right now, it is easier than ever to find people who are causing us to suffer in some way. Nod your head, yes. Right? We can go to a national uh, level and we can find, some, regardless of what your position is, we can find somebody on the opposite side of masks. Right? We can find somebody on the opposite side of the vaccine stance that we've taken. We can find somebody on the opposite side of the pronouns d- debate. We, we can find somebody on the opposite side of inflation and immigration and climate change and stimulus, right? And even if we go local here, we can find people who are on the opposite side that we are about a building being torn down in the middle of Fort Scott or a business that's just opened in the middle of Fort Scott or a street that remains unpaved in the middle of Fort Scott or masks or vaccines. And even if we go to our own living room, we can find people who are on the other side of an issue. Why did we spend on that? Why do I have to go to bed at this time? And who's taking out the trash? And why do I have to wear a mask? And should I get a vaccine? Right? We can always find somebody on the other side of an issue. Right now, there's a really odd twist to this because right now, it's easier than ever to really escape from people who live differently than we do. Do you know that your social feeds are designed in such a way with algorithms that track your interests? And so social feeds are designed to be a self-replicating feedback loop. So when you go to your social media, you like things, and it takes, tra- it takes accounting of what you like, and then it begins to show you more of those things. And so we like what we see, and then we see what we like. And the more we like something, the more the algorithm gives it to us. And what does that create? It creates an insulation that we live in this bubble, and we don't really get to see the opinions that we don't agree with. And because of that, we have failed to be in practice about how to deal with people who think differently. And so when they do pop up, they affect us more than ever. There's a, there's a whole subreddit um, on Reddit called Public Freakout. Just yesterday, there was on Public Freakout a, 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 a mass gathering in Los Angeles where people who were on one side of an issue or another, I don't even know, but they created chaos because we are unpracticed, we are unrehearsed at being civil with people who disagree with us. And we respond with what is natural. Anger, bitterness, hate, resentment, helplessness. And this is the corner of life that Paul says, you know what? You need to send that into the transformation process. What we need to transform are our relationships with people who disagree with us. And so, 
the world has an ingrained response for what we should do in those situations, how to respond when somebody disagrees with us. Paul says, don't be conformed to that way. Be transformed so that we respond in another way. And for a lot of us, maybe it's a new way. And what is this new way? How do I live with people who disagree with me, who live differently than I live? And Paul's answer is this. When you've been fully transformed in your thinking, you'll be able to bless those who are causing you to suffer. It's in verse 14. It's after the verse that we have chosen for this series. And it just says, bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Now, already you have all kinds of pushback. Wait a minute. All these things I disagree with somebody about and I'm just supposed to bless them? Hang with me, okay? Let's talk about an example of this kind of transformation. And we can turn to Acts chapter 10. And in Acts chapter 10, we meet a guy named Peter. Peter was a friend of Jesus. He hung around with Jesus. He was a disciple of Jesus. And in Acts chapter 10, Jesus has died and risen again. Peter has seen him uh, crucified. He saw him as a risen Lord. And Peter becomes the main character in the establishment of the church. He preaches the very first Christian sermon, and he becomes a leader of the church. And even this far along in Acts chapter 10, after all of that, he's still trying to figure out what it means to follow Jesus. That will last for the rest of his life, just like us. We're still trying to figure out what it means to follow Jesus. And in Acts chapter 10, if we could classify Peter in any way, we would say this, that he was a religious man. That was his default mode. He was a good Jew, and he knew how a good Jew was supposed to worship God. A good Jew is supposed to eat the right things, have the right diet, say the right prayers, maintain the right associations with the right people, and disassociations with the wrong people. And all of those things have a goal to remain pure, not to be defiled. And so the Jewish people would do all of these things so that they could continue to be a people who were distinct from other nations so that they could be devoted to God and so that God will stay true to his promises. So Peter is a religious man and he knows the right thing to do. But he's about to take a giant leap forward in his understanding of what it means to follow God. We, we find him on the roof of a house in Acts chapter 10, and he is being religious. He's not just praying twice a day, morning and night. He's actually praying at noon. Two times a day for a Jewish man was normal, but Peter is going above and beyond. It's three times he's following pious examples and doing more than is required. So he's on the roof, he's praying like always, because that's what you do when you're religious. And the text says he got hungry. <laughs> and while he was waiting for some lunch, he fell on into a trance. Literally, the text says a change of place is what happened in his mind. Maybe we could also call it a change of blood sugar, okay? Something like that. And what he saw in this dream, in this trance-like state, in this other place that he went, was a sky that was peeled back, and out of it, a giant white sheet was being let down by its four corners. And in 
all in this sheet were all of the animals and reptiles and birds of the air. There's an older version of this text in an, in an older translation that says this, that, the, that in the sheet, wherein were all manner of four-footed beasts and creeping things of the earth and birds of the heaven. Now, the idea is that there's food in this sheet, right? And it's not just the idea of food that we would like to eat, but it's also the food that you don't have any business eating. Spiders and silverfish and snakes and slugs. Ugh, there's no way, right? Undesirable things. Things that a good Jew would never eat. Things like pigs and lobsters and buzzards and squirrels and owls and rabbits. And this vision that he has is about food. And in the, food, in the sheet, there's food that is good to eat, and there's food that he knows is not good to eat. It's unclean, and it will defile him. It will, it will keep him from being distinct and devoted to God. And then comes a command. As he sees this sheet with all this food in it, the command goes this way. Rise, kill, and eat Peter. And Peter's immediate response was a religious response. No, 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 I can't do that. I've never done that. I, I've never eaten things that are common or defiled. But the voice is saying eat. So now maybe everything in the sheet is okay to eat. And that's the scene. And the scene starts over. It loops. It's a gif right? A gif, jif, whatever you want to say. The whole scene repeats itself three times. The animals are let down. The command comes, rise, kill, and eat. He says, no, 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 I can't do that. And there's a voice, you really shouldn't go against God. That's the second time. And the third time, the sheep comes down. Eat, Peter. No, 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 I can't do that. You really shouldn't go against God. Three times. Now, can we agree that Peter's vision is tricky? on the surface. Here's what Peter knows. He knows that the way to please God is to keep the law. Here's the second thing he knows. The part of keeping the law is don't eat things that are unclean. No pork, no lobster, no rabbits, no eagles. Since the time of Moses, those kind of foods were the foods of foreigners. They were, it, that was Gentile food. And to eat with Gentiles, to eat their food, meant that Israel would lose their distinctiveness. Even sitting down at a table with Gentiles was something you just didn't do. Eating is for people who are in the family, and Gentiles are not in the family. And so he knows, number three, that he's making the right decision. He's making a religious decision. Peter knows the way to please God is to keep the law. And one law to be kept is don't eat animals that chew and then don't eat and don't sit down with girls who do. Uh, Joel used that last week. That's kind of a nod to last week, okay? And he knows that's the right decision. But also he knows this. He knows there's a voice that he's hearing in this scene. And he knows that it's God. He knows that God is changing the game. My question is, how does he know it's God? 
you ever had a dream and, you know, you think it's God, but maybe it's just me? How does Peter know that it's God? If you're familiar with Peter's story, Peter has a history with a couple things. Number one, he has a history with saying never. In Matthew chapter 16, he says, Jesus, you will never go to a cross. In John chapter 13, he says, Jesus, you will never wash my feet. In Matthew chapter 26, he says, Jesus, I will never betray you. And there are other scriptures that we point to where Peter says, never. And so he has a history with that. He also has a history with the number three. Some of you who are familiar with the story, Jesus says, I'm going to be crucified, and you're all going to desert me. And Peter says, I will never desert you. And Jesus says, before the rooster crows tomorrow morning, three times, Peter, three times. And that's what happened. Later, after Jesus is resurrected, Jesus is sitting in front of Peter, and he says, do you love me, Peter? Of course I do. Lord, then feed my sheep. And he asks it again. Do you love me, Peter? Lord, you know I do. Then feed my sheep. And when he asks it a third time, Peter gets it. Peter, do you love me? Yes, I do. Then feed my sheep. Now what's just happened in this story? Peter has once again said, never. No, no, no. Not going to do that. Not gonna, I can't eat what, what we've always known is a defilement to eat. And how many times does this scene repeat itself? Everybody say, three. Three. And if that's not evidence that this was God, then the theme will actually continue. If we kind of read between the lines in what happens next, we get an exclamation point on this. Peter is pondering this vision that he's just had. He's trying to figure it out. And at that same moment, men from Joppa come. And you can read about this in chapter 10. It's the whole story. Cornelius is a Gentile man. He's a Roman centurion. And he sends two of his servants. And one of them is a Roman soldier and, the, and to Peter's door. And the Spirit tells Peter, I want you to go with them. They are not only Gentiles, they're, one is a Roman soldier. And he says, you can hear him in his head, never, I can't do this. They give him the scoop why uh, Cornelius, their master, needs him to come. And Peter is invited to come and speak. And an angel told him uh, to, to invite him. And everything in Peter wants to say, no, I can't sit down at a table with somebody who's not a part of the family. Never. But then what does people, Peter see? He sees how many people are in front of him. How many people are there? Count them. Three. And there's no doubt. This is God. And what he is saying is go with them, accompany them, accept the creeping things in this world, take off the religious superiority that you have, and would you just trust me? And Peter is commanded to purposefully become unclean by going with these men into Cornelius' whole house. 
One person said this, you can say Lord, and you can say not so, but you can never say not so Lord. And Peter was learning that. In verse 23, it says that he had some guys that accompanied him on this journey with these Gentile people. And accompany usually means just to travel with, right? And that's how Luke is using it here. But there's a secondary meaning of that word that's figurative. And figuratively, it means this, to die. We would, they would use accompany like we would use somebody passed away. It means somebody kicked the bucket, right? They died. Uh, and that's how they would use sometimes this word accompany. And obviously the Spirit is telling Peter literally to go with these men. But in light of the vision that he's just had, the clean and unclean together, it's not too much of a stretch to think that the Spirit is also implying to Peter, I want you to go with them and I want you to die. I want you to kill the way you're thinking. I want you to let your religious self-righteousness pass away. Because that's the way to put your whole trust in me. And if you'll do that, I'll show you how to live. And man, that sounds a lot like what Paul is encouraging us to do in Romans chapter 12. So this trip that he takes is a two-day trip. He gets to the Gentile house and he goes in and look at verse 28. It says, he says, look, I I'm not supposed to be here. You're not part of the family. Good Jews don't sit down at the table with Gentiles, but God has shown me that being a good Jew doesn't amount to much. And so I'm here. And Cornelius tells Peter his side of the story, that he's had his own vision, and God gave him commands through an angel, and he says, you're here, and this is why God has ordained this. We're ready for what you have to say. And Peter begins to preach. He begins to tell the story. He begins to say, you know what? Here's what I've learned. God doesn't show any partiality. And every nation of people who does what is right is acceptable to him in Jesus. Jesus is God's anointed one. He did good and he healed and I was Jesus' friend and I watched him live and then I watched him die on a tree and then I watched him live again. I was there. All of us disciples, we were there. We walked with him. We ate with him. We drank with him. We told, he told us to go and tell everyone what we had seen and that everyone can have forgiveness and salvation if they believe in his name. And at the end of the story, these Gentiles, these enemies of the Jewish people, these, these people who were detestable even to someone like Peter, because that's what he's been taught all of his life, they are afforded salvation in Jesus just the same as anyone else, and they are, believe, they are baptized, they believe in Jesus' name. And that sounds to me like Peter went and he blessed them in the best way that he ever could. Here's a people that caused Peter on some level to suffer, right? They were on the other side of the fence with his ideas and his lifestyle and his way of thinking. But his response went from cursing them to blessing a couple years ago, we went through a sermon series, and we just called it Bless. And there are a lot of uh, ser uh, s services 
that on a Sunday morning, I would just end this way, go bless somebody. And it came out of that series. And if you remember back to that series, uh, bless has an easy acronym. There's an easy way that we can begin to bless people. First, begin with prayer. And then we listen to those people. We listen to God. We listen to what He has to say. And then we just start listening to the people around us. And pretty soon, we will see who needs God and what we need to do. And so another way to bless them, those people, is to just eat with them, to make connections with them. And most often, that's over just food, right? And if you're listening to somebody and listening to God and, and connecting with them over a table, then you're going to know how to serve them. And at some point in that relationship, there will be an opportunity where you can share the story of what Jesus is doing in your life and how He is your Lord. And isn't it amazing that that BLESS acronym fits Peter's story? That's exactly what Peter did. We find him in, uh, at first, praying. And there's a vision, and he's listening to God. And then people show up at his door, and they're not the people that he thought would show up at his door, but he listens to them. He invites them in. They eat together. He goes to their house. They eat together. They connect and he understands how to serve them, and he shares the story of Jesus. And check this result in verse 48. These enemies of Peter asked him to remain there for some days. And so Peter becomes an influencer. He extends the conversation until his enemies become his friends. Adam, Adam Grant wrote a book called Think Again and um, he said this, that social scientists have done studies over 50 years involving 500 cases with 250,000 people on the subject of intergroup contact. And what we need to read is people and their enemies. And here's what these smart people know, that simply having an interaction, a normal interaction with that group, that person, that ideology that you are so against will reduce your prejudice 94% of the time. That is a staggering statistic. Do you know what it requires to bless somebody instead of persecute them? Blessing almost always involves interacting with them. A guy named Daryl knows all of this. Daryl is a black man who was not a stranger growing up to racism. He was a target of racial prejudice his entire life. And he has legitimate reasons to harbor animosity toward white people. One day, he found himself in a car. He's driving the car, and in the back is the chief officer of a KKK chapter locally whose official title was Exalted Cyclops. And it didn't take long for the Exalted Cyclops to begin sharing his stereotypes of black people with Daryl, a black man. He said, blacks are an inferior species. He said, blacks have smaller brains, which makes them unintelligent. He says, blacks have a genetic predisposition toward violence. And Daryl, as he's driving this car, must have thought, you know I'm right here, right? 
Like, I can hear everything you're saying. But he listened. And he said this, you know, I'm black, but I've never shot anyone. I've never stolen a car. Here's what the Cyclops said. He shot back that this, that it's because your criminal gene in you is latent. It just hasn't come out yet. Now, everyone in this room should have a new enemy by now, and it's not Daryl, right? And so Daryl thought for just a second, and then he challenged the Cyclops. He said, can you name three black serial killers? Cyclops thought about that. He couldn't name any. And so Daryl began to rattle off a long list of well-known white serial killers. And then he said to the Cyclops, you must be a serial killer because all serial killers are obviously white. And the Cyclops protested to that naturally, right? He said, I've never killed anybody. And Daryl replied, well, it's because your serial killer gene is latent. It just hasn't come out yet. Cyclops a little flustered at this point. He said, that's just stupid. Daryl said, I agree. It is, isn't it? What I said about you was stupid, but no more stupid than what you said about me. And for the rest of the ride, Cyclops got very quiet. He changed the subject. And the end of that story is that months later, he ran into Daryl. And he told him, I'm still thinking about that conversation that we had in that car. See, what Daryl had done is he planted a seed of doubt that made this man curious about his own beliefs. Not by cursing, but by blessing him with the truth. And the rest of the story is that this exalted cyclops ended up quitting the KKK. He ended up closing the whole chapter down that he led. And then he took his robe and his hood and he gave them to Daryl. How does that happen? If Daryl doesn't approach his enemy with an open mind... That doesn't happen. If it's just anger and bitterness and striking back and revenge, that doesn't happen, right? Same way with Peter. If he doesn't have an open mind and sit down at the table with outsiders, then they never get access to the gospel. Peter had every reason to keep his distance, and Daryl in that car had every reason to kick the Cyclops out of a moving vehicle. But he took another path. And how do you do that? And that's how we need to end today. How is this kind of transformation possible for every one of us? Because every one of us has been wronged by somebody that's hostile to us, right? How will we respond to that? If we go with our gut, it will be revengeful, cursing, it'll be payback time, it'll be I need to be calculated so that I strike at just the right time to exact as much pain as I can because that's what they cause me. Paul says this is where the transformation has to happen for us. And the secret to dealing with those who disagree is what Peter learned in that vision. It has to do with the gospel. We have to think through 
what the gospel means, what it really means. Let's just do a refresher. What even is the gospel? We spread that around all the time. What is it? It's that I'm a sinner, that I've rebelled against God, that I can do nothing on my own to make that right. And so Jesus came and he offered his perfect life on a cross for my imperfect one, and he paid the penalty that I owed to God. And when I accept his work on the cross as that payment for my sin, I can be restored back to God Part and be part of his family. In fact, I become an heir of his kingdom, not only in this life, but in the life to come. And the gospel is this. We could articulate it in this one sentence, that I am more wicked and sinful than I could ever imagine, but in Jesus, I'm more loved and accepted than I could ever dare hope. Now, how does that help me when it comes to people who live differently than me? Number one, the gospel reminds us of who God really is that he is patient with us, that he holds back his judgment, waiting for us to change, that he forgives us, that he makes a way for our relationship to be restored, and that way is Jesus. Here's number two. The gospel reminds me also of who I really am, that I'm a sinner. I'm a lost sinner. And so I can't look at anybody else and say that I'm less lost than they are. But also, I'm wholly made right and acceptable and lovely by God himself, So because I'm as right as I will ever be, I have nothing to prove and I lose a motive to convince myself of my value by being superior to other people. Here's number three. The gospel reminds me that there's a judge who can be trusted to make things right. God is just and he will dole out that justice and ensure that it's fair. Paul in Romans, in the same chapter that we're in, says, leave room for God's wrath because he will repay. And we know he will. The cross itself shows how serious God is about sin. He punishes sin. And so the gospel tells us that justice will come. And it reminds us that we are not the ones to give it. God is. Tim Keller says this, the gospel tells you that you are in no way superior. It brings you down to a right appraisal of yourself. And the gospel tells you that God loved you when you were his enemy. And when you grasp that, you find yourself loving those you would have despised. The gospel of Jesus is the power that enables us to bless people even though they would cause us to suffer. I want the uh, communion people, servers, to uh, go and get ready at this time. We're going to wind into communion here. And uh, as we take communion today, there will be a a tray that is passed uh, by you. And if you could just take a stack, uh, there will be juice on the top, bread in the bottom cup. And if you can just take that and pass the tray on. We're trying to avoid anybody putting anything back in the tray, okay? So just take, take a stack and uh, take uh, communion when you're ready to take it. But here's what I want you to think about. I want you to go back to this sheet that's in Paul's, uh, Peter's vision. And there's, there's clean things in there, there's unclean things in there, and The unclean things are because Peter knows that they should be here, right? And I want you to think about all of the people 
that are in your sheet. You know they should be there. Man, they are unclean, defiled, they're creepy, crawly things. Detestable things. And we put all kinds of people there. We put all kinds of nations of men there. We throw them into that unclean sheet. We, we throw whole churches that we know nothing about except the bad names that we've given them. We throw those in the sheet. And we throw people in the sheet that are outside of our land, right? On the other side of the aisle politically from us. We call them wicked. We throw the people in the sheet that live a different lifestyle than us and we say that they're four-footed beasts and creeping things. Sometimes even our own family we put in a sheet because of the way they've treated us, because of what they've said, because they have interests of their own and affections and ambitions of their own. What kind of detestable people are in your sheet today? And the point of that exercise is to identify who you need to invite to the table. I made it to the table. I am a creepy, crawly thing. You could probably call me a creep, right? But I made it to the table because of Jesus. And if I'm just a poor, good-for-nothing, creeping thing, but I got in, and I got in by the grace of Jesus, then He becomes the way for all creeping things, all of the creeps, all of the other creeps in the world, everybody that I put in my sheep, sheet to get in as well. And they will as long as I don't get in the way. If we're not in the way, if we can learn to bless people, even when they make us suffer, then every creeping thing in the world has a chance. Give them that chance. Bless them with a seat at the table. Bless them into the family by giving them Jesus. God, we celebrate that we have a place at the table today, that we were your enemies, but you loved us anyway. And so let us turn now to those we would call enemies and let us transform how we think about them. And let that new thinking lead us to new ways of acting so that we bless instead of curse, just as Jesus has blessed us. And we remember that blessing now in these emblems. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.